Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence by the Ohio Board of Regents in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, a brand-new facility completed in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in the new building. Read more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we're talking to Sonia Williams, a radio documentarian, an author, and a professor in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film at Howard University. During her career, Williams has received three prestigious George Foster Peabody Awards for significant and meritorious achievement, for groundbreaking music programming and audio documentaries for National Public Radio, Public Radio International, and the Smithsonian Institution. She created a 26-part audio documentary called Wade in the Water, African-American Sacred Music Traditions. Also, Black Radio, Telling It Like It Was, and NPR's Making the Music with Wynton Marsalis. She's a recent author of a book, Word Warrior, Richard Durham, Radio and Freedom, published in 2015 by the University of Illinois Press. You have so many things that we can talk about, but let's start with the most recent, and that that's your book, about Richard Durham, who had a lifespan from 1917 to 1984. Exactly. And it seemed, from what I could read uh, about his book and his life, he, he had a, a life in the media. He, yes. he was a writer. He was a pioneer in <laughs> radio. Definitely. Uh, he wrote radio dramas. Mm-hmm. He was uh, a ghost writer and, and helped Muhammad Ali uh, mm-hmm. write uh, his autobiography, The Greatest. This is a man that seemed to me, is I was reading, a man ahead of his time. <laughs> is, is that accurate or not? Most definitely. And I'm laughing because uh, that's how people described him. Uh, the folks who I interviewed said he was really ahead of his time. He was a forward thinker and he was a pioneer. He was a trendsetter. Um, but very few people know about him. <laughs> so that's what kind of, that's not particularly what drew me to him. But what drew me to him was that he accomplished so much and did so much. But he was really a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. You would not have, if he walked into the room now, you know, he wouldn't be the, you know, hail fellow, you know, Glenn Hand kind of uh, man. He would be, you know, pretty quiet, humble, 
um, very observant, but he he would then take his observations and his analysis and turn it into either drama or news stories or, or whatever, and well, it was all media-driven. One of those silent observers, then, as opposed to the attention magnet that <laughs> exactly. we see so, so often. Yeah, he was uh, not that kind of guy. <laughs> so how did you come upon him? Did Was this in your study of communication and, and radio that you stumbled upon him? No, no, actually, um, it was because of radio that I found him. And um, I have to credit the Smithsonian Institution for that. Because in the 90s, I had the the really great um, opportunity and fortune to work as a producer and a writer for a series that uh, then was called Smithsonian Productions or Smithsonian Radio uh, that was called Black Radio Talent Like It Was. And it was a 13-part series, uh, 13 half hours, that aired on public radio stations throughout the country. Back that, be- before podcasting. Oh, <laughs> way yes, before way podcasting. Before. <laughs> right. um, but it looked at the history of blacks in radio from radio's earliest days in the, you know, in the teens, in the 20s, all the way through the 90s. So I... I one of the shows that I was responsible for writing and producing uh, was about a black presence on the air in the 1930s and the 1940s. And I, I was really a little, um, I kind of approached that, um, that, that assignment with a little bit of trepidation because it was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be kind of depressing if you know anything about radio during the 30s well, and 40s. radio during the 30s and 40s, from what I know about it, and you, I'm sure, know way more, uh, was really the golden age of radio. Right. Many, many people would call it. Uh, right. uh, people gathered around the radio as the, the central point, as the way people gather around used to gather around televisions, <laughs> now to. they gather around <laughs> uh, computers. computer screens or, or, or their their tablets. Right. Uh, there were all kinds of genres, but the African-American presence on, on radio um, was, to me, uh, uh, it was always a point of humor as opposed to a point of dignity. And mm-hmm. the... Uh, the, uh, one of the shows, Amos and Andy, that was uh, sp- supposed to portray African-American life in mm-hmm. an urban setting, was done by two white guys. Two white guys uh, in if, blackface. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew, I knew it was done by two white guys. And then if you uh, go to uh, the one of the most popular shows during that area, Fibber, McGee, and Molly, mm-hmm. they started to have an African-American a uh, housekeeper named mm-hmm. Beulah that was done by a white male right. who did a supposedly a black female. So, right. so uh, outside of Rochester, who was the black valet of Jack, Jack Benny show, right. exactly. uh, there weren't many prominent black roles. Oh, there were very few. And the the problem was that even with the few, they were stereotypes. And they were pretty much negative stereotypes. Um, Amos and Andy was the most popular show on air, uh, a national phenomenon at the time. But we really are talking about two black men, Amos and Andy, who moved to Chicago from the South. And they were 
uneducated, they couldn't speak well, they were, they were buffoons in, in some cases. And they were stereotypes that, while the show had its humor and it was funny, but it also um, kind of perpetrated the stereotypes of the time. So while you, you can say that there were actors and actresses who were black and could have um, performed the roles and others, the most, for the most part, in the 30s in particular and into the 40s, if you heard black voices on the air, they were musicians or they were singers. Um, and the very few uh, actors, like a Jack Benny and a few others who um, appeared in other shows. Um, Beulah, by the way, uh, ended up having her own show. And eventually, the white actor who played um, Beulah, this white male actor, <laughs> Um, was uh, became Hattie McDaniel, and she was Beulah, this popular uh, maid who, um, who in her own way was dignified and could talk truth to power. Had a sense of, of had a sense of wisdom, a, and, a real and, sense and, of wisdom and humor, yeah, and humor. <laughs> and, and but you take Amos and Andy that started on radio, transitioned right. to television. As I was a young young boy, and exactly. then it was all all African-American black actors, but at the same time, it perpetuated some of the same stereotypes that that were uh, on the radio show. Yes, and that's why the NAACP uh, really um, had a whole campaign against it. Um, So you're talking about this kind of environment where blacks on air were limited and or stereotypical images. And so to have uh, Richard Durham move into radio in the 30s, in the 1930s, and then eventually by the 40s to have this series called Destination Freedom, which was a weekly half an hour dramatic series on WMAQ, the, the NBC affiliate station in Chicago, Uh, where you had these dignified, um, creative, accomplished figures, black men and women, heroes in their own right, who in their fields, and everything from science and education, the arts, um, uh, you name it, and historic and contemporary was really pretty unique and um, not unheard of, but it was it was definitely unique for the well, time. Well, it was certainly pioneering yes. Uh, for, yes. for the time. And, and he actually, after his death, received uh, induction into the, the Radio Hall of Fame. Yes. Correct? Yes, for the Destination Freedom Series. Yes. And, and at the same time, or as he progressed, he, he not only was a good uh, playwright, playwright mm-hmm. in, in this sense, or, or writer of drama, uh, he really had some great alliances. Tony Morrison, <laughs> Stud Turkle, mm-hmm. uh, Oscar Brown Jr. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, he, he really branched out. He I mean, did. that seemed to me, from what the little bit I could read, it that was just his beginning. <laughs> well, radio uh, was how he he really started. Actually, he started as a poet. So, as a teenager, he um, he was a voracious reader. Um, that was the first thing. His parents were education, not, I won't say fanatics, but they loved education, and they imparted that love on their children. And they had eight children, seven of whom survived into adulthood. So if you have a mother and a father who know that education is a key to progress and to, you know, a better life, um, then the children, uh, Durham and his siblings, 
um, were really part of that. And they, they moved from Mississippi to Chicago, particularly not only because jobs were more plentiful and paid better in Chicago, but because the education system was more expansive there. And so it really was about education. So then Durham uh, moves through the public school system in Chicago and by the time he is in his, well, he's a preteen, and the Depression hits. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. So he and his family are dealing with that. And as a result of that, a few years later, um, he's able to find a job or get a job as a writer in the Illinois Writers Project, which was part of the WPA, the Work, Work Progress Administration Program. Well, and he was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Defender. Right? Yeah, that came later. But, but he got his start. What, he back got his start. The, the depression in the pro- the, during the Depression, yeah. yes. And it's also during the Depression that he um, moves into this Illinois Writers Project where you have this this really nurturing cauldron of writers, Nelson Algren and Jack Conroy wow. and Richard Wright, although Wright had already moved to New York by the time he uh, got into the program, Arna Bontemps, um, uh, Margaret Walker. And so he's, he's working around these, this group of uh, men and women, some established, some up and coming. Saul Bellow was also a part of that. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, oh my God. And then yeah, one. And not only writers, but thinkers. Thinkers. Uh, exactly, exactly. And one day he, um, he, he starts to see that there's this group of about 20 writers who meet every week. Uh, and they sit around this conference table, and they're arguing, they're discussing, they're, they're really kind of into this. And he goes on and says, what are, what are you guys doing? And this is the radio division of the Illinois Writers Project. So he goes over there, and as I say, he falls in love. <laughs> He's like, oh, this is where I need to be. And he starts writing scripts for 15 minutes. At the time, the dramas on radio were 15 minutes long. And he still was young. Oh, yeah. He was I he mean, was barely what he was 22. <laughs> sort of the African American Orson Welles <laughs> in the sense of being very young and yeah. taking to this new medium. Exactly. Exactly. That. So, so he does that and that's how he gets into writing radio dramas, but it's also when he establishes his friendship with Studs Terkel because Studs is also part of the radio division. And and quite a character. <laughs> I mean, you think of Chicago, and you think of Chicago writers. He's right there at the he, top. He uh, is. Uh, he is definitely. So, did they have a lifelong uh, relationship? Yes, they did. They did. Um, Studs was about uh, about five years older than uh, Richard, but um, yes, they sta- their their relationship established then, and then they continued to be friends until Durham died. So, tell us a little bit, if you could, about his TV show. Oh, okay. Because uh, he morphed into TV for one show, right? <laughs> well, for one series. Well, that's what I meant. Well, one, one series. He, from the time he worked in radio, by the time we get to the end of the 40s and into the 50s, television was becoming and, the medium. And there was that transition. Right. Yeah. And he really wanted to work in television. He saw that as the next media um, venue. And um, and there, for various reasons, he couldn't do it right then. So he then works in other um, 
other venues, he works as a writer and organizer for one of the progressive labor unions in Chicago. Um, and then in the 60s, he ends up becoming the uh, editor of Muhammad Speaks, which was the newspaper, the weekly newspaper of the Nation of Islam. So he does that, and he also, that's when he um, interacts with Muhammad Ali and gets to establish a friendship with him. But by the end of the 60s, he is really still trying to get into television, and he, he does some ghostwriting. Um, but then he's approached by someone who says, you know, at WTTW, which was the, it still is actually, the public uh, television station there in Chicago, in right. Chicago they wanted to, uh, to create this series, a soap opera essentially, that looked at black life in Chicago. And so he was hired as a scriptwriter, and he decides to call this series Bird of the Iron Feather, looking at... Uh, what it's like for black families in Chicago. But he decides to use his protagonist is a, a black police officer, which you say, well, that doesn't make sense. But through this police officer, you get to see all aspects of life, what life was like for you know, black In the folks. neighborhood. In the yeah. neighborhood, exactly. Yeah. So I, I assume that it was, I've never seen it. I assume it's rich in texture. And, and well, it had its major problems because this was the first time that something like this had been attempted. Um, there was a, a lot, and I talk about it in the book, where there was a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, machinations in terms of who was going to participate and how it's going to be structured and all. But um, the the initial um, proposal was for 100 episodes on a daily basis. Uh, <laughs> it ended up only being about 21 um, but that's because of the politics of the time and the funding and, and all of the things that went on behind the scenes. And yet it was a um, it was a wonderful attempt to try to tell stories about the black community from black people. Well, it, it, again, it, it, he seems to be the pioneer. I mean, he was the pioneer <laughs> in radio. He was in television when there weren't many black writers. Oh, very Certainly few. no black directors or and actors were even few. Right. And really no black stories uh, other than the Amos and Andy parodies well, and stereotypes. By, by the 60s, though, there were there, a few there, more because you are talking there, there about were, I Spy and, and, and Julia. And, and, and then they, they, they morphed into the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> but he was still at that level had to be a pioneer yes he was. Uh, in, in doing doing that we'll be back after this message this program is brought to you by the scripps college of communication at ohio university the scripps college offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. The Scripps faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing media environment. The Scripps College of Communication is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence in Ohio in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, the brand-new facility that opened in 2015. 
state-of-the-art laboratory spaces, and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in this new building. Learn more about the Scripps College of Communication at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. We're talking to Professor Sonia Williams. She's a professor at Howard University, uh, also a graduate of the master's program here at Ohio University. She's the author of a new book called Word Warrior, Richard Durham, Radio and Freedom, published by the University of Illinois Press. You were a pioneer uh, or are a pioneer <laughs> with some of the work you did uh, when you first of all, how, how did you get into public radio and the whole <laughs> concept of telling stories uh, through through sound? That's a good question, and and I I tell everyone that I came to radio through music. Um, music is really my first love, and uh, I started out. Um, at the University of Chicago as a music major. But very early, my first year, as a freshman, um, one of my colleagues said, hey, you know, I have this show on the air, and you're a music major, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, why don't you come on and help me do this show? And I'm like, I, I don't know anything about radio. He said, that's all right. You know music. <laughs> and I know radio. You know music. Right, Good right. team, right? <laughs> so we had this show called, uh, very corny, The Touch of Love. He was Brother Touch, and I was to love. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and and so every week, I think it was on Sunday afternoon, we would, you know, spin the hits and talk stuff, talk trash. Uh, it was really a lot of fun. And I said, um, this is, you know, very interesting, but it's just fun. Well, the longer I stayed uh, working for the station, the, this is the, the university station, the more I found that there were, you know, of course, other ways that the medium could be used, not just playing music, but telling stories, both uh, factual stories in terms of news and then dealing with features where you could go in depth uh, about particular uh, subjects. And when I realized that you could actually make a living doing this, I was like, okay, this is it. And I switched my major and uh, went into communications. And my first job when I graduated was at public, a public uh, radio station in Iowa at uh, the University of Northern Iowa's um, public station. So that's how I got into public radio. And from there, it was just kind of, you know, kind of staying in that realm and telling stories in different ways. Well, at least a portion of your broadcast career, you've married music and your love for storytelling. I mean, you did, and some of our listeners may remember NPR's uh, multi-part series, Making the Music, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, one of yours. Uh, you also did Wade in the Water, the African-American sacred music traditions. Mm -hmm. That that was a, a big one uh, of yours. Was that really satisfying for you to be able to marry those two loves? <laughs> satisfying. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. And and I, I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity. Um, Making the Music was a series that uh, Went Marcellus, the you know award-winning trumpeter composer, was uh, the host and the creator of. So that was fun. But before Making the Music, I worked on... Uh, um, uh, Wade in the Water, African-American Sacred Music Traditions, which was the first 
kind of long form documentary series of its kind. It was a 26 parter, uh, 26 one hours. Um, it took wow, us about oh, it's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and it took us about five years to really pull it all together. But it was wonderful because we looked at the history of African American music in all its forms in, ter- in terms of dealing with the sacred. And um, and between interviewing the artists who created the music, uh, composers who wrote it, um, people who arranged, and, and of course all the behind the scenes, um, um, uh, all of the behind the scenes uh, events that sure. you know co- go, went contributed to that, that was really fantastic. It was it was a wonderful experience. So. You're a historian in addition to having love for music and love <laughs> for storytelling. I mean, it seems like in, in many things that you did, you you did the 2009 series Unc- Uncrowned Queens, Voices of African American Women. Mm-hmm. You have a historical context to almost all the things that you do. Exactly, because um, my my philosophy is that, well, I love history. That's the first thing. And I love researching, which is kind of how, you know, the book Word Warrior came about. But um, the stories of people, it, whether they're black or white or Latino or whoever, the stories of people, I believe, are fascinating. And there's so many stories that we really don't know about, even today, that if we can find ways of 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 getting into the story, finding ways to creatively tell those stories so that you interest people who were not alive when uh, the particular subject was doing his or her right. uh, thing or being um, uh, you know, a major figure, or, or even not. You can talk to, for instance, the series you mentioned, Uncrowned Queens, Voices of African American Women, weren't about... Um, major figures, but they were about women in New York, in um, western New York, in Buffalo and, and the surrounding areas, who were community leaders, but we would never have known about them, but for us saying, okay, let's go and document these women's lives and what they're doing and how they're affecting their community, whether they're doing it through teaching whether they're in social services, whether they're an artist or, you know, whatever it is. So with all the work that you've done and and now you're in academia and, and you're teaching, um, what's next? You've got to have something inside that's still burning, <laughs> and it, that, that's going, I haven't told this story or I want to look into <laughs> I want to look into that, or or people need to hear this. Yeah. Well, the the thing that I think I want to do next is go back to my first love, which is music, and to look at um, the stories of particularly African American women in music, and and really kind of figure out a way to tell that story because I think that you know we we talk about musicians and there are some fantastic musicians in all. All genres, um, but if you're a black person in this country and you're creating this wonderful art form in whatever style you may be creating in, um, there may be particular challenges and successes that you have that may be different and or similar to others. So that's, I think, what my next um, 
goal is, and I'll probably do it in terms of a book because now that I'm in the book <laughs> realm, <laughs> right now, now that you're a published author, right, right, right. I, I think I'm I'm going to try to do it in in book form. Is radio diversified to the point where it should be in the 21st century? Uh, no, I think it can definitely be more diversified, but it's it's much better than it was when I started, in particularly in public radio. Now, I can't speak to commercial because my experience has largely yeah. been in, right. in public. But um, no, it can always be better. Uh, but then you have programs like Youth Radio, uh, which is in Oakland, California. And when I lived there... And I hear those voices yes, this week as, as, as NPR is out there. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. And, and it's so wonderful, too, because in, I lived in Oakland in the late 70s, early, six, uh, early 80s, before I came to Ohio. Ohio. Right. right. And, um, and, and the youth radio, it was called something else then, but it was just starting. So to see that it survived and thrived and bringing in this whole new generation of journalists and, and radio um, enthusiasts is, is really wonderful. I, I know listening on, on satellite radio and, and listening to public radio remix, mm-hmm. we hear many more mm-hmm. diverse voices, not only in, in ethnicity, but in age right uh and it, it's just so rich to 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 listen to it is it's not this homogenized uh version of what we think public radio was right, right. and certainly it it was that right right and and even at howard university while um you know uh, we may be teaching um a generation of students who um, don't have the radio tradition like, say, maybe we, we did, um, when they're introduced to, when they hear uh, radio dramas from the 40s, <laughs> or when they hear features that really you know, create a whole soundscape uh, and tell fascinating stories just with sound, they really get into it. We've been talking with Sonia Williams, radio documentarian, author, and professor in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film at Howard University. We want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Spectrum is available on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, and the NPR One app. Tune in next week for a new edition. For more information about Spectrum, go to wub.org.